It may be helpful for you to know that Moses has appealed to the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh, several times and asked him to let the Hebrew people go. Approximately a million people were being held in bondage and slavery and captivity in Egypt, and Pharaoh has refused to let them go. And so God is about to act in a spectacular manner. And so we break into the chapter at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the rivers will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of the Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Now, over these last few Sundays together, we have... Notice God interacting with Moses and his parents. We have seen God interact with Moses. We have been reminded that Moses had murdered the man and had fled from Egypt. And for 40 years, God was working with Moses in isolation and obscurity and saying, Moses, I'm about to do something spectacular, and I am calling you to be the great emancipator of my people. And he asked Moses to do the very thing he dreaded the most. He asked him to go back to Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. And so Moses went back to Egypt, pleaded with Moses to let the Hebrew people go, And Pharaoh said, no. And if you were with us last Sunday, you will know that in Egypt in those days, Pharaoh was considered a god. When he spoke, people's lives were taken. Other times he spoke and those lives were spared. Statues, temples, monuments were constructed all over the nation. Pharaoh was leader of millions upon millions upon millions of people. And here was this shepherd from the far side of the desert had come to challenge his authority and tell him what he could do with his slaves. 
And Pharaoh said to Moses, this is never going to happen. Because Pharaoh knew that if he dismissed almost a hundred, excuse me, almost a million slaves, the construction across the country of Egypt would come to a halt. He knew that national morale would take a hit. He knew that those who were employed to look after the slaves would lose their job. The economy would be damaged. And Pharaoh, in shaking his head, is saying, Moses, this is never going to happen. And again and again, throughout chapter 6 and 7 and 8, God talks of Pharaoh in these terms. His heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. And Pharaoh would not listen to Moses. And God knew that only under compulsion, only if he was forced to take action, only if he had no other option, then Pharaoh might act. But if there was any other way, he would take it. And so, here is Moses about to approach Pharaoh again. And he's about to walk into a wall of opposition, antagonism, hostility. It will not go well. And here is Moses saying, Father, if ever I needed your help, if ever I needed the hand of God upon my life, it is now because Pharaoh was not willing to go along. Now hold that picture for a second. And let's stand back for a moment and try and see the larger picture. Because what is going on here is exactly what the Scripture teaches in multiple places. Scripture teaches about the love and the grace and the wonder and the intimacy that is ours with God. It talks again and again of his love and his grace. It talks about his power to transform and renew and to change us fundamentally from the inside out by impacting the heart and the mind and the will and the soul. And it talks in these terms multiple occasions. But Scripture also deals with humanity's greatest single enemy, and it is that of sin. And the scriptures define sin like this as being attractive, enticing, persuasive, appealing, but it also talks about sin as enslaving, addictive, tranquilizing, It impacts the heart and the mind and the soul, and it holds you in bondage to itself. That's how powerful sin is. Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about sin as being utterly addictive. And some of you have been thinking ahead a little this morning, And I suspect in your mind, you've already got to a place that I'm about to describe. And in your mind, you are saying, now Richard, hold on a second here. Pharaoh is all-powerful as far as the Egyptian people are concerned. 
Earlier, we said people are given life and death depending on a whim from Pharaoh. He rules millions of people. He has all of the power and wealth and influence he needs. But please hear this. Pharaoh was in bondage to his own sin. If you had asked Pharaoh, Pharaoh would have told you he was the most free person in the world. He could do whatever he liked, whenever he liked, say whatever he said, wished to say. Anything he wanted, he would get on a whim. But he was in absolute bondage and in slavery to his own sin. Isn't that strange? But that's how powerful sin is. And God knows that if he has ever to allow Pharaoh to set his people free, it would take something very special. It would be a mission impossible. But thank goodness we worship a God who delights in the impossible. And so here was Pharaoh coming face to face with the living God. And of course, he is asked by Moses to set the people free. And he refuses, not just once or twice, but multiple times. And so God understands fully that he has very little choice than to put pressure on Pharaoh. And so he sends, as we read moments ago, Moses and Aaron to turn the water of Egypt to blood. Now imagine what that is like. You wake up the next morning, you go for a shower, and it's only blood that's available. You go into the kitchen to get a drink of water, get breakfast ready, and it's only blood that's available. In Egypt, a staple of their diet would, of course, be fish that they'd pull out of the Nile. But the fish are dead because the Nile has turned to blood. Right across the country, day after day after day after day, children can't eat, adults can't eat, you can't do any laundry, you can't do any cooking. Fresh water has turned to blood. And in chapter 7, we read these words. Pharaoh turned and went into his palace and did not take this to heart. And so what does God do? He adds a little more pressure and he sends a plague of frogs. Now imagine that. Imagine you, after church, you go out, you get into your car, you're heading home or you're going somewhere for lunch, you open the car door and there's frogs bouncing about inside your car. And not just one or two, but dozens and dozens of them. And then eventually you get to where you're going to have lunch, and there is no lunch because there's frogs everywhere. And again, children can't sleep at night, for frogs are bouncing around under the bed, on top of their bed, in the closet, in the kitchen. You open up the fridge door, there they are, in the tens and dozens and dozens of them. And it goes on and on and on and on. And Pharaoh even though all of the pressure is put on him, not just by Moses, but his own leadership, the Egyptian people. I imagine delegations are now coming to the royal court and saying, please, can't you stop this? Pharaoh refuses once again, and God sends a plague of gnats. Can you imagine how that works out? 
when they go up inside the nasal cavity into the inner ear are biting children at night, you can't sleep, you wake up in the morning and you have lumps and bumps everywhere because you've been bitten all night long. And more pressure is put on Pharaoh and more pressure is put on Pharaoh. And then after gnats come flies and after flies livestock die and then boils break out and hail and locusts and darkness and God is putting pressure on Pharaoh. And at one point he says, Moses, okay, take your people. Good riddance. And as soon as they stop, and it was with the frogs, incidentally, as soon as they stop, he changes his mind and he goes back to his stinking thinking. Ever been there? Ever wondered how that goes? Ever been at the point where you convince yourself that the old way was better than the new? That's what's going on here. That's how powerful sin is. When it gets a hold of the heart and mind and soul, it is utterly toxic. That's what's going on here. And folks keep coming up to Moses. His friends will get alongside him and put their arm around him and say, Moses, surely Pharaoh must give in now. Surely the gnats were enough. We know the frogs were bad, but the gnats are just awful. Surely he must give in. And then the flies come and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Let me pause for a second and ask this. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where God uses the circumstances and situations you are facing in your daily life in order to get your attention? Ever wonder why he's brought something into your life to say, it's time for you and I to talk? Ever wondered why he lets you get in over your head and then slowly but surely begins to drive you to your knees because when you're on your knees, you are dependent. When you're on your knees, you're looking to him. When you're on your knees, you're not thinking about how you can solve it yourself. But when you're on your knees, you're at that place of submission and surrender and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's next, but I need your help here. Now, I can't do this on my own. That's where Moses was. That's where we are sometimes. And he is forcing Pharaoh into a similar position. And Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder and harder. And in fact, in these chapters, we read that dreadful verse. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Can you imagine what it would take for God to act in such a manner? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because Pharaoh consistently refused, consistently would not give in, consistently pushed back and resisted the hand of God. And here was God saying, Pharaoh, if that's the way it's going to be, he takes his hand off him entirely and Pharaoh goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. 
And I imagine Pharaoh that night just shaking his head, pulling out his hair in frustration, saying, I will not give in. I will not give in. I will not give in. And sin is having a field day. And it's ruining his life in every sense. Utterly toxic. Now, you may be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. And... I've been grateful for taking us way back into antiquity, to the time of Moses, laying out step by step all that's taking place here. But Richard, here's my question this morning. How do I take this passage from Exodus chapter 7 and apply it to my own life this morning? Because there's one thing looking back to the day of Moses, there's one thing uh, focusing on all that happened then, but what about today? What about the 21st century? What are the lessons in this passage for me? Let me suggest this. I'm not sure this is the best illustration, but I think it's reasonably helpful. Let's imagine, for the sake of this discussion, that... You have a two by four at home. It's about three, three and a half feet long, two inches by four inches, and it's not dressed wood. In other words, it's come from the sawmill. And you need to smooth off the rough parts. And you have a place in mind for this piece of timber. You can't wait. It's exact size, a little rough, but you take some heavy sandpaper and you start to smooth it out. I can't help wonder if God sometimes sees you and I like that. He picks it up and he says, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this piece of timber. Look at the grain on that. Look at the knots in this that bring its own strength. Now, let's see if we can't take off the rough edges. Let's hold it up to the light. Yeah, okay. A little more here. Is it straight? Yeah, okay. And some heavy sandpaper to begin with. And when God consistently, day after day, faithfully begins to shape that piece of timber, take off the rough edges, he begins to put his own mark on it. He begins to make it his own. That often happens with our lives. And sometimes as he's smoothing it out, what is he doing? He's looking at pride about halfway down in the middle there. And okay, that's going to need a little work. And then turns it around, yeah, and a little more there, and a little more there. Slowly, gradually, consistently. Sometimes he looks down that and he goes, "Mm mm-hmm. There's a little fear of the past there. Fearful, I'm going to go back to the man I once was. Let me deal with that. Yeah, there's a little anxiety about how you're going to get through today. Oh, worried about the future. Let's see if we can't deal with that. And here is the Spirit of God getting alongside us, assuring us of His love, shaping and fashioning us and making us into a Christ-like character. And He is working day after day after day. That's how we apply this passage We recognize the toxicity of sin and its addictive, tranquilizing effect on our lives. And we 
go in the other direction and say, we will not live like that. We will not live like that. I do not want to be the person I once was. I want to belong to him. I want to be his. I want to live for him each day. I want to know the superabundance of his love and his grace. Or I wonder if you're here and you're asking a bigger question and you're saying, Richard, let me ask this. Would God ever bring to us his hand of judgment the way he did back in Moses' day? Would he put his hand of judgment upon us And the answer is simply this. No, today he would not put his hand of judgment on us. It's not that we don't deserve it. It's not that he wouldn't be correct and just in doing that. But God visited his judgment on sin in a different place. In another place, not in Greenville in the 21st century, but at Calvary in the 1st century, that's where you see the judgment of God. That's where you see him pouring out his displeasure, and he pours it out on himself. That's what happened at Calvary. That's where... Christ took our sin. That's why we have a Savior. That's where we turn. That's where we have our confidence. That's where we depend. Because he laid on him the iniquity of us all. The scripture teaches this. He who had no sin became sin for us. Do you understand the enormity of that? It wasn't that he was simply blamed, but he became sin for us. The toxicity of that sin, the hatred of sin, the crazy, stinking thinking we have in our minds telling us we will never be good enough or never loved enough or never be the people he wants us to be. All of that was placed on him at Calvary. And the judgment of God has been satisfied for us. This past week, I was teaching our Wednesday Bible study class. And I reminded them of six words that appear in the epistle of James. James was the younger brother of Jesus. He didn't come to a living faith till after the resurrection. But in chapter 4, he writes six of the best words to be found in that entire epistle. And that's saying something because the epistle of James is pretty spectacular stuff. And he writes of God, but he gives us more grace. James is telling us when we are in an impossible position, when we are in over our heads, when we think we will never make it, please remember, 
but he gives us more grace. More grace. For daily need, daily grace. For urgent need, urgent grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. He gives us more grace to live each day. Do you remember the words from the old hymn? He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength is, when our strength has failed, ere the day is only half done, when we've reached the end, of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. It wasn't only for Moses' day. It wasn't only for the first century, but is equally applicable in the 21st century because of all that Christ has accomplished for us. And it's not just old hymns that tell us wonderful truths of the gospel. The gospel isn't only applicable to a previous generation or the first century, but it is bang relevant up to day now. Remember these words? This, the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that this passage of Scripture reminded us of today. Father, we recognize and acknowledge in our own experience the toxicity and slavery and bondage of sin. But we also know that because of Calvary, we have been set free. Father, enable us, please, this week, when we find ourselves in over our heads, when we find ourselves in urgent need, urgent grace is available. Father, bless us, please, as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray.